and welcome to All Tomorrow. I'm Peter Schechter. And I'm Taya Ivanovich. I'm filling in for Mooney Jensen today. And we're here to navigate the rough seas of global politics as we do twice a month. And today our topic is the coronation of King Charles after 70 years of Queen Elizabeth's rule. We'll go back to the pomp and the circumstance beyond the Harry and Meghan of it all, the disgraced Prince Andrew and Camilla turning from a villain into a queen. But we'll also talk about the mood, the reality, the economy, the recent elections, and the real identity crisis that is raging in Great Britain. Today we'll be joined by well-known British journalist John Sopel, and we'll take a look at some of the geopolitical messages from the ceremony, the mood in the UK, so evident by this juxtaposition of local elections versus the coronation the same weekend, and of course, the post-Brexit's place in the world. Taya, I watched the coronation, or at least bits and pieces of it, because I confess I did not watch it all. And I was surprised by how religious it was, the actual anointment of oil on Charles as the head of the Church of England had some real spiritual connotations. But I'll let you talk about how that stuff goes down with newer generations. But by far, the most interesting was the international guests and the messages that foreign countries sent through those delegates. I mean, here, here's an example. China's envoy to the ceremony was Vice President Han Zheng, who is personally responsible for China's repression and hardened policy with Hong Kong, a former British colony. What was that all about? I mean, was it like a flexing of the muscles? Another one that sort of caught my attention in attendance from Northern Ireland was a member of Sinn Féin. He ruffled many feathers. And Jill Biden, by tradition, the right choice because no president ever attends a British coronation. And her friendship with the First Lady of Ukraine sent a clear message as well about where the U.S. stands on major geostrategic issues, even though those were considered appropriate choices by the crown and the crowd. Listen, I think all of us watching and many people I've talked to approach this coronation with with some skepticism. And, you know, Charles is not exciting. And, you know, one could argue that nowadays monarchies are best enjoyed on Netflix, even though I personally haven't seen The Crown or Bridgerton, but I know many people did. Uh, but this event did shine, you know, a light on the UK, its place in the world. And it was sort of a score taking for Brexit, immigration, relations with Ireland and the rest of the world. And contradictions between old England and the gritty local and regional elections where the Conservatives lost were on jarring display. And several years into Brexit, the country has not found its footing politically, economically, and in its very soul. And despite the complexity of issues such as immigration, Brits voted for the economy, worrying about skyrocketing inflation. And the relationship with Europe is rebuilding, but only one brick at a time. And attempts to repair this friendship with France and Ireland in particular are slow but steady. And the U.S. alliance is still very much underway. Taya, I like your phrase, which you said at the very beginning, which was the Brits are suffering an identity crisis. You know, Scotland wants another independence vote. Northern Ireland's Protestants fearing this formal connection with Catholic Ireland no longer trust the British state to protect the union with London. Brits are no longer Europeans and the dream of post-exit nirvana emanating from going it alone, well, that's been totally punctured. The British identity, is it a world capital or just a simple separate island nation, is made more difficult by an immigrant prime minister who's definitely anti-immigration. And the coronation, yet another fantasy royal escape after the jubilee and then the funeral and now the coronation, 
They're just parentheses between these bouts of self-doubt and identity crises. And then, you know, let's in the deep cost of living crisis and as household budgets have been stretched by a year of huge inflation that's really around the double digits and food inflation actually around 20%, the crisis feels very existential. And recently, you know, wholesale gas prices have fallen. Um, the economy has fared better than was expected. And instead of a recession, which was widely expected during the winter, Britain has recorded two consecutive quarters of growth, albeit at 0.1% in Q1. And what's interesting is also that the Eurozone posted the same growth, if we can call it growth, at 0.1% this quarter as well. So slow growth exacerbates this experience of households across the country. And what's really concerning for many economists is, you know, rising inequality that is, you know, really, really jarring right now. And it's an economic danger that, you know, almost always hits the youth the hardest. So I'll go into that a little bit in my TS take, talking about the youth and those effects as well. Hi, I'm Taya Ivanovich, and this is Taya's Take, where we take a look at youth and social justice issues. And today we'll take a look at British youth. Yes, surely, at their views of the royals, who, you know, unsurprisingly, they don't love. But I also want to look a little deeper. So first things first, yes, the Brits' views on the monarchy have deteriorated tremendously since they enjoyed their height of popularity in the 1980s. And their image went through some rough waters in the 1990s when popular Princess Diana died in a car crash and allegations arose of Prince Andrew's sexual abuse of minors alongside Jeffrey Epstein. But then they sort of recovered in the 2000s, but now they're really truly at an all-time low again. And, you know, you see what's coming. Most of these disapprovals come from the youth. Just 14% of under 35-year-olds take that view compared to 44% of those 55 and over who like the monarchy. But, you know, I'm not losing any sleep over it, but maybe the king and the queen should because polls show that Prince William and Kate are much more popular than Charles and Camilla, and people are already excited about that coronation, which, you know, who knows when that's going to be. So to be continued. So I want to shift to the economy, which really is seriously hurting young people in particular. And the UK has endured a persistent cost of living problem, which we talked about earlier, for the past two years, and it's led to a lot of issues. Sure, the macroeconomic issues that affect all households and businesses, but what we then often see is really how hard the youth gets affected by these economic downturns. Data shows rising youth unemployment, lack of opportunity, but reports also show things like increases in young adults committing petty thefts like shoplifting. According to a report, one in 10 young adults have admitted to stealing items from supermarket stores, self-checkout lanes to make ends meet. In fact, shoplifting has reportedly jumped by 22% at the end of 2022 compared to 2021. The cost of food and fuel continues to rise since inflation has stubbornly persisted in the double digits for months and food inflation is over 20%. The generational gap of who it's affecting is really huge. I mean, 37% of young people require financial assistance as opposed to 5% of those over the age of 55. 
So here's my take. When it comes to the monarchy, despite declining support, especially from youth, I'm not very concerned about any major movements happening there. When the new generation of royals comes to the throne, we'll probably see another rise in popularity. But when it comes to the economy, I'm much more concerned. History has taught us that economic downturns breed inequality, which often hits youth the hardest. And when that happens for sustained periods of time, violence and riots quickly follow. Let me know what you think, whether it's about, you know, Princess Kate's matching flower crown with Charlotte at the coronation ceremony or youth inequality by tweeting at Altamore Podcast. Taya, thank you. We have a lot to discuss with our guest, John Sopel from the BBC. John is an award-winning journalist and television personality. He held the prestigious post of the BBC's North America editor, during which he conducted an exclusive interview with President Obama, traveled on Air Force One, famously clashed with President Trump at a White House news conference. He played a key role in major political and international stories, anchoring coverage on location from around the world, including for the funeral of Nelson Mandela, the inauguration of Pope Francis, countless presidential election wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, and the Middle East, and a number of natural disasters. In February 2022, Sopel announced that he would be leaving the BBC after an exclusive signing with LBC to launch a new podcast and joint radio show with fellow presenter Emily Maitlis. The News Agents, as the podcast is called, features Sopel, Maitlis, and Lewis Goodall, was launched in August of 2022. He's also the author of three books, including Unprecedented, A Diary of the 2020 Elections. John Sopel, welcome to Altamar. Thank you so much for that kind introduction. All right, John, let's start with what everybody's talking about before we get into the heavy stuff, which is, I know you feel that the coronation was a massive contradiction. Why do you feel that? Tell us your impressions, the takeaways from the ceremony. Where was it all and contextualize it for us? Well, here is Britain sixth or seventh largest economy in the world. We've got a permanent seat on the Security Council. But yet at times it feels like Britain is either falling apart, there are train strikes, there are nurses on strike, there's a lot of industrial unrest. There feels like the kind of fabric of the country is being slightly torn apart. And yet the one thing we seem able to do with such remarkable ability and agility is organize a coronation, royal events. If As long as it's involving horses and lots of brass and buckles and people in scarlet tunics, then we're really top of the league. Otherwise, we're kind of middling. So that was that kind of upsets me slightly. I also quietly support the monarchy. I think that if you were starting from scratch, would you have a hereditary monarchy uh, because you think that they are put there by God? No. But it sort of works and therefore I've kind of passed it by. I thought the real contradiction was when we were asked whether we would like to swear our allegiance during the coronation ceremony. And I suddenly thought, no, I'm kind of happy to quietly go along with this, but I'm not going to swear my allegiance to the king and to his successors, whoever they may be, because I will take a view on this depending on how they do in the job. And I think that you've now got a monarchy that is very heavily dependent on public opinion. We There is no divine right to rule anymore. And I think that is the contradiction that I saw slightly with this coronation. 
You know, it, it's funny, John, you mentioned that because, you know, Brits and in particular the youth seem pretty unimpressed with the royals. And yet anecdotally, when I speak to our joint British friends and so many others, there seems like you have sort of little appetite for removing and changing and doing some type of constitutional uh, implosion. So how do you see the, the relationship between British citizens and the monarchy going forward? I think the success of the royal family has been to adapt and change almost in a Darwinian way to survive. And I think that, um, you know, King Charles had a very different coronation to his mother. And I think when King Charles dies, Prince William, the Prince of Wales, he will have a very different coronation again. I just can't see him being put behind a screen and given holy oil and things like that. And I think that, you know, I actually it was the death of Princess Diana back in 97, where it seemed like the royal family had stayed up in Scotland in Balmoral, didn't want to come back to London. And I think that the Prime Minister of the time, Tony Blair, warned, saying there is a sulfurous atmosphere among the British public and you need to come back and show your concern. And I think that that was a jolt for the royal family to be reminded just how heavily dependent they are on the support, not just of Parliament, but of public opinion. And whilst there are Republican murmurings and rumblings, I don't think they're yet critical, but they could easily become that. So, John, the other contradiction which struck me was the contradiction between the ceremony and the elections that were held two days earlier. The elections laid bare and sort of a sense of anger and impatience with a party that has left the country scandal-scarred, divided, facing lingering economic costs from Brexit after 13 years in power. It was sort of a weird juxtaposition, sort of this election which the conservatives sort of lost badly because as, as you were saying at the beginning, because, you know, without the gilded horses, sort of England's nothing seems to be sort of angry about its economic situation. Yeah. You know what? When the Queen died, I thought it may be a really critical political moment and it would take elected politicians to kind of calm the nation. And we had Boris Johnson and we had Liz Truss and we had total chaos and pandemonium. And it was like the royal family with a bit of sanity that we had. And yet our democratic institutions were in chaos. I think we've gone back to something a bit more like normal politics in the UK after a period of some madness and quite a bit of populism and quite a bit of dishonesty and uh, you know, p ways of behaving that were just not seen as acceptable. And I think that with Rishi Sunak as prime minister, actually, we're slightly more going down a route of kind of technocratic government and doing things because they work, not because they start a culture war. Now, there are still tendencies within his government that of people who like culture wars. But I think that we have gone in a better direction in Britain. And I think that the next general election, which will probably come sometime next year, uh, will be fought along more conventional lines. I want to delve a little deeper into exactly what you were saying, John, which is moving away from the chaos and the madness of your words and talking about these two British leaders who are really dominating politics right now. And it's Rishi Sunak and Labour leader Keir Starmer. And 
they both seem very successful, uh, breaking away from the craziness. And Starmer seems to be doing well as opposition leader. Can you describe them for us a little bit more? And how does the public view them? So Rishi Sunak's problem is that he has inherited the premiership after 12 years in which we have had the divisiveness of Brexit with very, very, and, and let me put this kindly, uh, unclear results about what it has delivered to the British people. Some would argue that it has delivered absolutely nothing in terms of economic progress. But he's is seen as a safe pair of hands, evidence driven, kind of quite kindly. It's almost as if, and I know this is a strange thing to say, particularly in the context of American politics, it's almost as if he is trying to make politics boring. The more boring he makes it, the more successful he thinks he's been. That's him on one side. Keir Starmer on the other side of it, lawyer, a prosecutor, someone who has been around in public life a long time, but hasn't been around in politics a long time. His first job was to detoxify the Labour brand. And the Labour brand has not been a successful brand. Tony Blair, you know, won three elections in a row, but Labour haven't won a majority since 2005, haven't been close to it. And it will be a huge uphill battle for Keir Starmer to win the next election, just because parliamentary arithmetic. It's not like you've got an electoral college where you start from scratch and you've got to get to 270. It's very different in the UK context. And Keir Starmer is going to have to gain a huge number of parliamentary seats to get him over the line to become Britain's next prime minister. But on the basis of those local council elections, those municipal elections that you were talking about, he's sort of getting there. He's not far off. And, you know, look, we all know that a year is a very long time in politics. He has got the time to potentially build this up. And I think that is just as the 2020 election in the US saw a kind of big anti-Trump vote rather than a pro-Biden vote, I think there could be a very big anti-conservative vote if not pro-Labour, but pro-Labour are the beneficiaries of it. And putting it into sort of broader context, I mean, Britain seems to be suffering multiple identity crises, Brexit, Scotland, Northern Ireland, immigration, elections, a weak economy. You know, how does Britain journey through these multiple questions? In a democracy, elections are supposed to resolve sort of lingering questions of identity. But like in the US, it seems very hard to fathom that another election will resolve Britain's identity questions. What do you think? Well, I, th I think, look, any election poses huge challenges. And there's very rarely a moment where politicians go for, before an election and there aren't huge issues facing them. I think that Brexit is the great unresolved question in British politics, because the British people voted for Brexit, 52-48, back in 2016. 2016 seemed to be a year when lots of crazy things were happening in the world. Let's just put it like that. And Brexit has not yet delivered. But the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, who opposed Brexit, doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want to open that hornet's nest and find that he gets stung by it. So you've got nobody talking about an issue which I think is absolutely fundamental to Britain's future. And I think there's a growing feeling that Brexit has not delivered because Britain is still pretty much where it was. We were the only 
G7 country whose economy has not grown back to the size it was pre-pandemic. And what is the unique feature of Britain compared to the other members of the G7? It's Brexit. We were part of a single market with our neighbours in Europe. Just like a, if you're in Arkansas, you can trade with Kansas and there are no barriers or tariffs and you can just move your goods freely across. Well, Britain could do that, but now we can't. And that has led to all sorts of complexities. And you are right to point out the complexity of what happens in Ireland. Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. The Republic of Ireland is a separate country. Are we heading towards a situation where Northern Ireland says, you know what, we no longer want to be part of the UK. We want to be part of a United Ireland. Now, that will be seismic and there will be a lot of controversy and a lot of political turmoil if that happens, because, of course, you know, we saw 25 years ago before the Good Friday Agreement, people tried to settle their differences, not always in Parliament. They did it through bombs. And we don't want to go back to that. It's perfectly possible that Scotland as well will decide it wants to be an independent nation within the European Union, not part of the Great Britain. So Great Britain, emphasis on the great, could soon lose Northern Ireland. It could lose Scotland. And Great Britain will just be England and Wales. And I don't think you get a permanent seat on the Security Council if Britain is shorn of so much of what gives it power. John, you brought up an issue which was Scotland and Northern Ireland. What is the real danger that British unity can become undone? I mean, I, I know that a lot, of, a lot of people are worrying about that, but how real is that worry? I think the real worry in Scotland, if you are a, someone who supports the union, is that if you look at the demographics of this, Leave aside where the political debate is at any given moment, because the Scottish National Party, which is the main champion of independence, is having a really terrible time at the moment. There's been all sorts of scandal. The leader has quit. There's the, the, the treasurer is under investigation. It's all horrible. But if you look at the generational attitudes towards Scottish independence, there is a huge majority among 18 to 34 year olds who support it. And the people who believe in the union. Uh, older and as demographics works are dying and so i think you are heading towards a stage where it's almost inevitable that if there were to be a vote soon or in the next 10 years for scottish independence there is a very high likelihood that people will vote for it and i think that therefore it's you know the arguments for the union of politicians in westminster whether they're labor or conservative need to be made forcefully so, John, we need to ask you about the economy, of course. And, you know, Britain in the last two years has had this crisis, this cost of living crisis. And there's been many conversations about whether the UK is the sick man of Europe. But despite this double digit inflation, you know, fears of a deep recession have slowed. There has been now two quarters of some growth reported. What's your take on this and how do we put that into context? Well, <laughs> like a lot of countries. And, you know, the Fed has been raising interest rates. Interest rates went up again here in the UK to 4.5%, which I think is just behind the base rate for the Fed in the US. Look, we still have an inflationary problem. Now, the governor of the Bank of England is saying that he hopes that inflation will fall to about 5% by the end of the year. Fuel prices are coming down, which has been one of the big drivers. And this is, of course, linked to Ukraine, where 
you know, America is more protected from some of that because of your own natural reserves of oil and the like. But Britain has been heavily dependent on imports uh, of foreign gas. And so I think that Britain's economy is exposed. It's also exposed because of food prices and labour costs. And the labour problem that we have in the UK is that there are shortages of labour to fill the jobs. It goes back to an earlier question you were raising about immigration. And there are going to be figures showing that net migration in the UK for the past year is something like plus one million. Now, the whole point of Brexit was you were going to curb the numbers of people coming in from abroad. You were going to stop the free movement of goods. And so you've got this problem, if you're a conservative prime minister, of how do you get the economy growing? Well, if you want to get the economy growing, you need to produce more and you need to have more labour in the labour force. And yet that means more immigration. And I think that is a conundrum that has a peculiarly British edge to it. And I think that that could inhibit economic growth coming up. And of course, you've still got inflation and you've still got people's mortgages coming up for renewal where they're going to have to suddenly pay an awful lot more. So we are talking about very clearly a drop in living standards. And the great idea of your democracy, of British democracy, is transgenerational mobility. And if that sounds you know, a bit complicated. We want to be our kids to be richer than we were. And that isn't happening now. John, I want to end our great chat with questions about Britain's international relations and in particular sort of the relations with the United States and relations with Europe. Where, where will the next few years take us both on the special relationship with the US as well as the ex-special relationship with Europe? I, I think that whether you're Keir Starmer or you're Rishi Sunak, you are hoping that relations with Europe will improve. And Rishi Sunak has taken a big step towards that with what was called the Windsor framework, which was this kind of whole trying to sort out this incredible migraine inducing problem of what to do about trade with Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland, where Northern Ireland is part of the UK and the rest of Ireland is part of the EU and how you kind of can have trade between those things. And so I think that is being sorted out and that will help improve relations on a wider level with Europe. But there is strong pressure within the Conservative Party that we should be kind of tearing up any regulations that we had when we were part of the European Union. The problem with that is that the European Union are likely to turn around and say, well, we're not going to buy your goods if we're not satisfied with the standards that are being met. I think with regards to the United States, uh, the British obsess much more about the special relationship than Americans do. There is huge amount of trade. It is our biggest single nation trading partner, the US and UK. And so I think that there will be a desire to maintain that and to maintain links as much as possible. The British would love to get a trade deal with the United States. But I have to say that the mood of economic nationalism, whether from Donald Trump or Joe Biden, is such that I just don't see that happening anytime soon. And so you've got the, the trade department in the UK looking to do individual trade deals with individual states so that there can be an increase in trade with America. I think Britain is finding it 
a, a bumpy ride establishing itself outside of the EU. And I think that that is something that was underplayed during the referendum and is now actually biting Britain pretty, pretty hard as we try to find our way in this post-EU world where we're supposed to be this great sovereign individual nation freed from something. John, thank you for this great conversation. John Sopel from London, thank you for joining us on Altamar. And thank you so much for inviting me. Yeah, I was struck by John's view of this generational change. What happens when all of these, I don't know how to say it nicely, older Brits are no longer with us and a new generation of British citizens, but some of whom don't want to be British citizens anymore. They want to be Scottish and they want to be Irish. And, you know, it, this great identity crisis is really a generational shift of beliefs and values and mores and sense of nationality that I think is going to imbue the next 20 years of the United Kingdom with enormous challenges to how do you bring this all back together? Yeah, Peter, I completely agree. I mean, I think my takeaway was that right now we're sort of Britain is muddling through, right? The economy is, you know, it's not been great, but we're still at, you know, 0.1% growth. And, you know, the prime minister, it's been controversial, but yet we've returned, you know, to some sort of level of normalcy. The, you know, monarchy was really unpopular, but we're sort of okay and it's stable. But I think where the real question is, is about what you were saying, which is the generational changes that are certainly for, like, forthcoming for, for Britain and what's going to happen in the next 10, 20, 30 years with both the makeup of Britain and its economy itself. So I think that's really where, where the question lies. So with that, we hope you enjoyed this episode and you can listen to Altamar wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget, you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, which helps us a lot. You can sign up for a bi-weekly free newsletter for an analysis of global trends beyond the podcast itself. And we will see you next time.